Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, then you know that uh, what we've done and what we're going to continue to do today as we, um, as we get closer to Christmas is take these weeks and talk about a few words and phrases, uh, some things we say, some things we read, some things that we sing, especially at Christmas time, that we may not fully understand exactly what they mean or why we say them. We've said them many times before. Uh, but we're not exactly sure. Sometimes they can be confusing. Uh, sometimes they can be unclear. And so uh, this morning, again, as we've done for the last couple of weeks, we're going to talk about one of those songs that we sing, those phrases that we sing that is somewhat unclear. Pastor Rick Piccarello is the senior pastor at Mount Hope. He heads up our Burlington campus. And just a couple of weeks ago, his daughter, Isabella, came up to him and said, Dad, how come every Christmas... We sing about chicken fingers and sauce. And Pastor Rick, he looked at her and he said, what are you talking about, chicken fingers and sauce? She said, every Christmas, we sing about chicken fingers and sauce. And he said, when do we sing about chicken fingers and sauce? And she said, I, she didn't really, couldn't really remember when we sang about it, but she just knew that every single uh, year when we got to Christmas time, we sang a song that was about chicken fingers and sauce. And just last week, it hit Pastor Rick what she meant. When he saw the words, holy infant, so tender and mild, chicken fingers and sauce. And we all have those words that we use. Emmanuel, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Joy to the world, we talked about uh, last week. Those phrases that we hear and that we, we use, but sometimes we're not fully sure exactly what they mean. And we're going to talk about another one of those this morning. In fact, we just sang this phrase a couple of minutes ago. We sang, maybe you can help me finish this line, we sang, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And the question before us this morning is, what exactly do we mean when we say newborn king? What does that phrase mean? Charles Wesley wrote those words a long time ago, but what did he mean when he wrote down those words, glory to the newborn king? There's something that's true about, about all of us, I think. I know it's true about me. I'm guessing that it's true about you. I think pretty much everybody uh, this is kind of true about all of us. And that is, when it comes right down to it, none of us really like anyone else telling us uh, what we should do. None of us really want anyone else. We like to tell ourselves what to do and decide what we want to do and who we'll listen to and who we'll believe and who we won't believe but we really don't want anyone else coming along and telling us what we should do or what we should think. In fact, this feeling that we have, it manifests itself pretty early on in, in life. When we're kids, we may say something to a, maybe a teacher or a parent or even another friend. When they tell us what we're supposed to do, we may look at them and say, you're not the boss of me. Maybe you've heard that from your kids, or maybe you remember saying that to your parents. But early on, we say those sorts of things. You're not the boss of me. Or maybe we'll be hanging out with a group of friends, and one friend will start to take control and tell everybody else what to do. And finally, someone will look at them, and they'll say, listen, who died and made you king? Who died and put you in charge? There's something inside of us that we really don't like. And it's, it happens when we're a child. We really don't like other people coming along and telling us what we should do or what we should think. In fact, even when we grow up and maybe we're in a work situation, we've probably all had this happen before, been in a work situation and someone else comes up to us, someone who's not our 
boss, not in charge of us, and it's a co-worker, it's, it's someone else, they come up to us, and they start telling us what they think we should be doing, how we should be spending our time, how we should be working on the project we've been assigned. And while they're talking, there's something going on in our head. We're thinking to ourselves, who does this person think that they are? They're not my boss. They shouldn't be telling me what to do. I don't have to listen to them. And there's something really inside of us, something inside of us, that we really don't like it when other people come along and they get to be the authority and they try to tell us what to do. It's not just something that happens when we're kids and when we grow up. It's really uh, part of the DNA of our country and our culture. And we're not going to let anyone else tell us what to do. In fact, just last Wednesday, about 3,000 people gathered in Boston. And they met in a room and there was some shouting and the crowd got all riled up and they, they walked through the streets of Boston and they went to a boat that's sitting out uh, in, the, in the Charles River near the harbor and they took 100 pounds of tea and they dumped it over the sides of that boat. And it may sound familiar, it's because they were reenacting what happened 242 years ago. Is last Wednesday, December 16th, was the 242nd anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. And so as they do every year, people got together and reenacted this moment where a king who lived across an ocean decided to tax a group of colonists and not only tax them on the tea that they were buying, but also tell them that they had to exclusively buy the tea from only one company, the East India Company, and the colonists had enough. And they said, no one, no one is going to tell us what to do. So on December 16th, 1773, the Sons of Liberty, led by a man named Sam Adams. Some of you just perked up, didn't you? (laughs) I don't know if Christmas is coming early, but I think the sermon's on beer. That's what you thought, but it's not true. The Sons of Liberty, led by Sam Adams... They got together and they threw 90,000 pounds of tea over the side of that boat because no one was going to tell them, especially a king living across an ocean, what they were supposed to do. And we all kind of have that inside of us, don't we? We don't want anyone coming along telling us what to do. We'll decide what to think. We'll decide what to do. We'll decide how to act. Thank you. Well, this morning we're going to look at an ancient ruler who felt the same way that you and I think. He was an ancient ruler in an important position, and he felt the same way that we do. He had control over his life and his kingdom, and there was no way anyone else was going to come along and tell him what he should or shouldn't do. And the question that I I want us to ask ourselves in just the, the minutes that we have together this morning is, are there times in our lives where it would actually be a good thing for us to let someone else take authority over us? Even though we have that thing inside of us that doesn't really want to give up authority and doesn't want to listen to outside sources and doesn't want anyone else telling us what to do, are there times in our life where it would actually be a good thing for us to allow an outside authority to take over control of our lives? This ancient ruler that we're talking about, the one who kind of thinks like we do, that he doesn't want anyone else to tell him what to do or be an authority, His story is found in Matthew chapter 2, and it happens right around the birth of Jesus. In fact, it happens just, this story happens just after Jesus was born. This is a story of the wise men coming to visit Jesus, 
and the king that was on the throne at the time. When we look at our nativity scenes, you maybe have one in your house, you maybe drive past one, you maybe see the one that's on the mantle in the fireplace room in here. It's always everyone together, one big happy party. The shepherds, the wise men, everybody in the same place there, everyone in the same uh, stable. But the wise men really come after the fact. They come a year, maybe two years as much after Jesus' birth to come and visit. They're not there that night as the shepherds are. And this is their story of them coming. And in this story is this one ancient ruler who's a lot more like us than we may want to think. And that he's not going to let anyone else be the authority over him. Here's what it says. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said, through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now listen to this. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. But you look at that, those verses and you think to yourself, This Herod the Great guy, Herod the Great as he's known historically, Herod the Great is is kind of a a crazy man. Here he is, he's a king, he is is king in, in Judah, and he is so threatened by a newborn baby, he's so threatened by an infant, that he would do something as drastic and as horrendous and as horrible as kill all of the boys in the entire region around Bethlehem, two years old and younger. I don't know that I can even fathom how disastrous that would have been to be in those families and among those people. I mean, the act itself is, is a horrendous act. And we ask ourselves the question, why would a grown man who has risen to such heights be so 
threatened, so, so bothered by a newborn child that he would do something that terrible? Well, in order to answer that question, we just have to know a little bit about who Herod the Great was. Herod the Great was a man who had risen to authority in Judah, not because his dad was the king and his dad died and he became the king, and not because the people got together and held a vote and elected him. He was there because he had gotten there by political force and manipulation. Really by brute force and manipulation. Herod the Great had ascended the throne by killing the people that disagreed with him and by manipulating other people so that in in 37 B.C., the Roman Empire recognized that he was king in Judea, in Judah. And so as he was king, Herod the Great always had this, this thing that he had gotten his throne by power and oppression and manipulation, and he was, he was very nervous that someone else was going to come along and steal his throne in the same way. He was a great builder. He built amazing projects in Jerusalem that you could still go and see to this day. He was a great administrator. But what he's most known for, Herod the Great, was his suspicion and his murderous outbursts. When Herod the Great got stressed and thought he was threatened, heads would literally roll. In fact, he went so far as to kill two of his own sons when he heard a rumor that they might be planning a mutiny. There's this old Roman historian named Josephus, and Josephus records that Herod the Great killed many members of his own family and a number of rabbis in and out throughout Judah just because he was afraid that someone was going to come along and steal his throne the same way that he had stolen it. He was a man who wanted to be in charge, a man who wanted to be in authority, and no one else was going to come along and tell him what he should do. No one else was going to come along and steal that from him. So when these wise men from the east, who would have been part of some sort of Persian elite class, they definitely would have been special guests, VIPs coming in. When they come to the king and they present themselves before him and they say that they're here to find the baby that has been born king of the Jews, all of a sudden Herod the Great's ears perk up. In 37 B.C., when the Roman Senate installed Herod the Great as king, do you know what they named him? Word for word, they installed him as Herod the Great, king of the Jews. So now these wise men come out of nowhere and they say, hey, we hear that there's a baby that's been born and that he's been born king of the Jews. And Herod hears that and says to himself, I'm king of the Jews. And he knows that he has no birthright to being king of the Jews He knows that he's taken that by force and manipulation and oppression and and brute force. And and he thinks to himself, there is no way that some child is going to come in here and is going to threaten what I have built. So he says to the wise men, listen, when you find out where he is, tell me so that I can go and worship him. But the wise men live up to their name. They're pretty smart guys. They're warned in a dream not to go back to him. They know he's up to something. And when he finds out he's been outwitted, he's furious. And makes this terrible order to kill all the boys in the area two years old and younger. And to understand why he would do that and why he would be so threatened by 
by a baby lying in a manger in the middle of a stable is because he's a man who has individual power and authority, and he doesn't want anything to come in and to threaten that individual power and authority. So as long as Jesus was just a baby lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he was cute, and he was somehow the baby that never cried, and all the animals stayed silent, and everything was peaceful, and as long as he's that Jesus, it's no problem with Herod the Great. But when he finds out that this is a newborn king, and very specifically king of the Jews, all of a sudden he poses a great threat to Herod the Great. And Herod the Great has to find a way to get rid of him. You know, in some ways, I think that many of us, when we approach Jesus, we're much the same as Herod the Great is. See, we like the baby Jesus. We love baby Jesus. Maybe even this time of year. This is your favorite time of year, maybe. None of us mind baby Jesus. The Jesus that is born and laid in the manger that we sing songs about that looks great in all of the pictures, the baby that, that looked in all the nativity scenes. We don't mind uh, that Jesus. That Jesus doesn't bother us. But when we start to think about the Jesus who is the newborn king, all of a sudden we're not so sure that we like him that much. Because if Jesus is a newborn king, then that means that he has some sort of authority. And that means he's been born to establish a kingdom. That means that he has authority to tell people what they should do and what they shouldn't do. That means that he's looking for people who would submit to him and who would follow him. And we think to ourselves, well, as long as Jesus is the newborn baby that makes me feel better and, and, and represents things like peace and hope and love, I'm fine with that. But once we start thinking about him as the conquering king who has come to establish a kingdom and is looking for people who will submit themselves to his authority in their lives. We're not so sure that we, we like that Jesus as much. A couple weeks ago, there was an interview on NPR with a filmmaker named Alan Berliner. And Alan Berliner just released a new documentary called Family Album. And I'll tell you uh, what he did. What he did is he went to thrift stores and garage sales and other places like that for years. And he gathered together all of the family home movies that he could find. And he went through all the home movies and he said to himself, what do these home movies teach us about families and us as as a culture? And then he made this documentary family album with some of his findings. He said his, his most striking finding that he came up with? Well, he said there were two. One is, we love the beach. That's what he said. So many home movies are about the beach, they're about the ocean, they're about the water. That's the first thing he came up with. But the second thing that he came up with was pretty striking, and that is that 70% of the home movies that he looked at were of children. Parents filming their children. But what he noticed is, is that once children reach the ages of 10, 11, or 12, the video stopped in almost every family. He said more than one occasion, he came up on a family and got all their videos. And let's say the child's name was Adrian. He would watch a video and that video would be titled Adrian Age One. 
and then he would watch the video entitled Adrian Age 2, and then 3, 4, 5, and then in every family, by the time it got to 10 or 11 or 12, there was no Adrian Age 13, and there was no Adrian Age 14. At some point, 10, 11, or 12, the videos just kind of fell off. And the interviewer asked him, why do you think that is? Why do you think that is that, that the children are videotaped until they're 10, 11, or 12, and then there's no more record of them? And Alan Berliner said, I think it's because it's around that time that children start to establish their own authority. And puberty happens, and adolescence happens, and worlds collide, and there's clashes of authority within families, and all of a sudden, these little cute children just don't seem so cute anymore. And putting them on video just doesn't seem like such a great idea anymore. And I think there's some truth to that. We're enamored. We're enamored as long as, it, as long as this child doesn't question our authority or is no threat to our individual authority in some way. But the second that changes and they start to question our authority, then we're not as enamored maybe as we used to be. Still love, of course, but not as enamored. And I think the same thing happens to us with Jesus Christ. We love the Jesus that is born into this world to save us and to love us. But He is also the God in flesh who has come to establish His kingdom on this earth. He came to show us how to live, to teach us how to think, to teach us how to act, to tell us what we should believe and why we should believe it. And there's something about us that when we encounter that Jesus, when we encounter those things, there's something about us that is more hesitant to embrace Him, and certainly this world, in the world that we live, more hesitant to embrace that picture of Jesus, not just the newborn, but the newborn King who has come. You see, each and every one of us, we are very busy, aren't we, building our own little kingdoms. We're all pretty busy building our own little kingdoms. Kingdoms based on our families and kingdoms based on our careers, and kingdoms based on our material possessions, we put all these things together, and whether it's a big kingdom or whether it's a small kingdom, it's still our kingdom, and we are in control of it. We are the one who is in authority. I think in the world of social media, it's easier than ever before to build our own little kingdoms. We are king of the kingdom, and we decide who will follow us and who won't, we decide who gets to come into the circle. We decide who gets to be a part of the crew. And we're the king of that domain. And we get to decide who we will follow and who will follow us. And more than ever before, when people speak out and question our authority, it's very easy with the click of a button to unfriend or unfollow or block or delete. We are the kings in authority of it all. We control the finances, we control the property, we control the family maybe, we control uh, who's in and who's out. We get to be in charge and more and more we are very busy building our own kingdoms. And now you may say to me, listen, I understand what you're saying, but I would never react the way that Herod reacted to Jesus, but I think in certain ways that we do. And maybe the problem is we really don't understand the threat that that baby in the manger poses to our own little kingdom. Jesus says that if we are to follow him, that we would give up everything that we are, that we would turn our lives over to him, that we would submit everything to his control, that we would take up our cross daily and follow him, die to ourselves, Jesus says, and follow him. And that is a real threat 
to us being on the throne of our own individual kingdoms. In fact, if we're really going to follow Jesus the way he calls us to, then we have to take ourselves off the throne of our own kingdoms and put Jesus in that place. And that idea for many of us is just too much to ask. And so what we end up doing is we find all the things that we like about Jesus and we try to incorporate those into our lives and all the things that we don't like about Jesus we just don't pay attention to. Or some of us just, we get angry at the whole idea of Jesus. Certainly we know people like this. People the idea that God sent His Son 2,000 years ago to live and die on the cross and save us, that makes people angry. Just like it did King Herod. And I think a big part of that is the threat that it poses to our own authority. If Jesus is who He says He is, then we have to put Him on the throne and we have to get off. We're so busy building our own little kingdoms and putting all these things together and and getting more stuff and and trying to make more money and and be more successful and and, and prop ourselves up and be in charge of all these things. But there's one thing that I think that we ignore when we build our own kingdoms. That is, no matter who we are, all of our earthly kingdoms have one major flaw. All of our kingdoms that we're building, that we're in charge of, they have one major flaw. The famous uh, Russian writer Leo Tolstoy, he writes a short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's a great little story. I would encourage you to Google it and read it. It's only four pages long. How Much Land Does a Man Need? And in that story, he tells about a man named Pahom who is a peasant, very poor. And he really doesn't like his life as a peasant. And he complains. And he says, if only I owned my own land. If I had my own land, then I will finally have made it. Well, wouldn't you know there was a woman near Pahom who sold some land. She divided up a big section of land and sold it in little chunks. And she would even let people buy the land on credit. And so Pahom hears about this and he goes and he gets a down payment. He borrows, he sells, he does whatever he can, gets a down payment. And he buys this little 20-acre piece of land. And for just a little while, he thinks he's made it. But after a season where he has a harvest and it's decent, he thinks to himself, you know, this is a good little kingdom I'm building here, but it's really too small. If I could have a bigger piece of land, then I could make enough money to put some money in the bank. So Pahom hears about this group of people that live in a place called Volga, and he decides to go, and he realizes that he can buy more land for less in this area. And so he sells his land and he buys a bigger piece of land and he goes there and he says, now I've made it. And he begins to harvest crops and he makes enough money that he's able to rent more land around him. And he's putting money away, but he starts to say to himself, you know, if I didn't have to rent this other land, I could make even more money. And he hears about these people that live, that are named the Bashkers, who live in a far off place. And he hears they're selling land extremely cheap. That for a thousand rubles, which is a whole lot less than what he paid for his current land, for a thousand rubles, he could get all the land he could ever want. So Pahom goes and he visits with the chief of this tribe of people, brings them some gifts, and he says, Is this true? For a thousand rubles, I can get as much land as I want. And the chief said, It's true. Here's how it works You give us a thousand rubles, 
we put a mark in the ground. The sun comes up, you start walking. You can walk as far as you want. But by the time the sun comes down and goes below the horizon, you need to be back at the mark. Whatever perimeter you've walked, all that land is yours. But if you don't make it back to the mark, by the time the sun sets, you get nothing. So Palom, he starts doing the calculations in his head, and he says, well, I can walk a long way during the daylight. I can make it a long way. So the next day, he pays his thousand rubles. He gets up. The chief throws his hat on the ground, and that's the mark. He says, start walking, and when, just make sure that you're back to my hat by sundown. And so Palom, he starts walking, and he takes a shovel with him, and every so often, he digs a hole to mark the edges of his new land. About halfway through the day, he turns and looks back, and he can't even see the chief and his people anymore. They're so far away. And he starts calculating in his head how much land that he's going to have, and he says, well, I should probably turn back towards home. Well, he turns back towards home, but now it's the middle of the day, and the sun's hot, and he's been digging holes, and he is tired. As he goes, he gets more and more tired, and finally he can see the chief and his people on the horizon but the sun is low in the sky. And he says to himself, if I'm going to get back to this hat and get this land, I need to hurry. And he starts with every ounce of energy that he has, trying to get back to the mark. And he's moving harder and harder and harder. And he's breathing and he's sweating and everything that he can. And the chief, as he gets closer, and all the people are cheering him on, trying to will him to get there before the sun sets. And just before the sun dips below the horizon, he reaches out with his last effort of strength, puts his hand on the hat, and everybody cheers as Pahom has marked off this huge new piece of land. Well, the cheering dies down. And everyone starts to notice that Pahom hasn't moved. And his servant walks over and kind of looks at him and realizes that with his last efforts, he's passed away right there. So the servant takes the same shovel that he was using to mark his land, digs a hole, lays Pahom in it. And Leo Tolstoy ends with this line, how much land does a man need? Turns out, six feet from his head to his toes, is all he needs. See, here's the major flaw in my kingdom and your kingdom. It's temporary. It dies with us. No matter how much we accumulate, no matter how much we can get, no matter how much we control, no matter how authoritative we think that we are, our little kingdoms, they die with us. Our kingdoms have one major flaw. They are temporary. And you and I have to choose who we're going to listen to and who we're going to submit to and who's going to be in authority in our lives. And most of us, especially in our culture and in this world, most of us, we say, well, if someone's going to be an authority in our lives, then it's going to be me. I'm the one who's going to be in control. I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. I'm going to decide who I'm going to listen to. I'm going to decide how I deal with the things of this world. And let me just say this morning that I would suggest to you that when it's time to choose who is going to be king in your life, that you should choose the king who reigns forever. 
That we shouldn't choose people and choose individuals who only live for a time and then leave. That we shouldn't put ourselves on the throne because we have one major flaw, and that is we don't last forever. That one day we are going to pass away and we're going to stand in front of our Maker and our Creator and He's going to ask who we've put in charge. And the only right answer in that moment is that we've submitted ourselves to Jesus Christ who is King. Because you see, Jesus came as a baby, but He didn't stay as a baby. He came as God in the flesh to live among us and to do what we could never do. That is to live a perfect life and to die on the cross for my sins and for your sins. To take our place and to do that thing that only God Himself could do and be raised from the dead so that He might establish a kingdom that began when He came as a baby in that manger and ends when he returns at some point in the future. And for each and every one of us, we have to choose in our lives, who are we going to let be the authority? Who are we going to listen to? Who gets to be king? And when it's time to make that decision, we need to make sure that the person who is in charge, the king that we are following, is the king who reigns forever. There is only one. He's the newborn king. Lying in that manger. So my question for you this morning is this year at Christmas, will you allow Jesus to be king in your life? When we allow Jesus to be an authority, we don't lose, we gain. We gain salvation, we gain hope, we gain a future that lasts beyond this world. We gain forgiveness, we gain grace. Will you allow Jesus to be king in your life? For some of us, we've never done that before. For some of us, we've talked to Jesus in the past and said, Jesus, I want you to be king, but over time, we've taken pieces back. We said, all right, Jesus, you can be king, but I'm still going to control how I deal with money. You can be king, but I'm still going to to, uh, participate in things and and watch things and do things that that I know I'm not supposed to do. God, you can be king in my life, but I'm still going to take control of relationships. So the question is, will you allow Jesus to be king in your life, not just of a peace, but of the whole kingdom? Of all that you have and all that you are. All of us, our little kingdoms are temporary. His kingdom lasts forever. Will you allow Him to be king? I'm going to invite our worship team back this morning as we close And in just a few moments, we're going to sing a couple final songs. And as we do, just like I mentioned before, I want us to be the kind of place where we can pray for one another and pray for our needs. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, this morning I need to spend some time. I need to say to God again, God, I'm sorry that I have not put you as king over my life. I'm sorry that I have taken that position for myself. I'm sorry for for the ways that I have taken you off the throne. And you need to spend a few moments as we close here this morning talking to God between you and him and asking him that he would take that position again. Remembering that he's not just the newborn in the manger, that he is the newborn king who has come to reign forever and reign in your life and reign in my life. And maybe this morning for the very first time you would say to God, listen, I don't even know exactly what this all means. But I know with me in charge, it's not a good plan. And maybe you would say to God this morning that you would want Him to take control of your life for the first time. 
that you would trust him in that way. You know, because Jesus is the king, there's nothing that's going on in your life or my life that he's unaware of or that's bigger than him. And so maybe this morning there's something that's happening in your life or your family. You're battling illness. Someone close to you is battling something. You're battling a situation. I don't know what it is. But God as king is greater than that situation. God has the answers. He's in control of that situation. And maybe this morning, maybe this morning you need to come and just ask for prayer for that situation. Whatever it is, as we sing, my wife and I will be up front. Please come and ask us. We'll pray with you. Or you're free to come and kneel at the front here and spend time between you and the Lord. Let's spend some time with God now. In His presence. Recognizing that He alone is King. God, we thank You this morning for the reminder. The reminder that You are King and that You are in control. God, I pray for all of us here, Lord. Would You reveal to us those areas in our lives where we have put ourselves in in authority and are not trusting You the way that we should. Lord, I pray for the person in here this morning that's giving you authority for the first time in their life. God, I pray that you would come and do your work. That you would take control, that you would lead them, that you would guide them, that they would know your forgiveness, that they would know your love. Lord, as we spend these next few moments in worship and prayer, would your Holy Spirit move among us? Would you do the work that only you can do? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Would you stand together as we close this morning's service in a time of prayer and worship?